Do you have your phones with you this morning? Did you turn them off? Good. You know, when you update these things, it takes forever for it to, to finish, doesn't it? I updated my computer. I put it off and put it off and put it off because every time it updates, it changes things so that I don't know where everything should be, you know. But I finally updated my computer um, last night, and it's amazing. It said it would take eight minutes. Well, it took about eight minutes. It did about 95% in the first four minutes, and then you watch the clock, 96, 97, you know what I'm saying, for about four minutes to finish that last two to four percent. Well, there's a thing in business and psychology that's called the 100% rule. It's sort of like that. It's the last two or three percent that seem to be so hard. But in fact, the 100% rule says this. It's popularized by Clayton Christensen, who's Harvard Business School professor. And he puts it this way. It's easier to hold your principles 100% of the time than to hold them for 98% of the time. You stop and think about that. It's easier to hold your principles 100% of the time than it is 98% of the time. So if you've made a decision to diet or to stop smoking or whatever it is, what he's saying is it's easier to make a 100% commitment from the very beginning than to leave 2% possibility that you won't. And that makes a lot of sense. You see, the 98% rule suggests that there might be exceptions or errors or we might ease up when it gets a little bit tough going. We make excuses. The 98% rule would suggest that, well, there may be other options. And what happens in the decision-making process, those other options make it very complex for us to decide to follow through. It leads to what some psychologists call decision fatigue. The 98% rule means, frankly, this, that we have not really made a decision, an irreversible decision to do what we think we're committed to do. We're only partly committed. The popular folk philosopher Robert Brault puts it this way, We are kept from our goal, not by obstacles. It isn't obstacles that keep us from achieving our goal. No, we are kept from our goal by a clear path to a lesser goal, something that seems to be easier. You see, the 100% rule says that we dismiss all possibility that we won't do it. No matter what, it's a done deal. No matter what, the case is closed. No matter what, there is a clear and simple path to the end, and that pathway is built on the confidence that we are motivated by our determination to achieve that goal. Now, I understand that people have addictions, and I understand that they may make a 100% commitment and they may falter, but I think this idea is worth considering. The 100% rule suggests that we make a total commitment, that we are all in. Becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is not a 98% thing. We either die to self and take up our cross and follow him, or we walk as wounded warriors, not having died, and try to stumble along in life in our own power.
You see, this is what Paul has challenged the Thessalonians to do this morning. It's the 100% rule. The background is pretty clear. It is probably the earliest writing in the New Testament. We believe Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, probably not long after he has left and started the church there. And he has moved on, we think he's in Corinth now, probably about 50, 51 A.D. Probably the very first New Testament writing. The circumstances are obvious. He makes them clear. Christ had not returned, and he still has not returned after 2,000 years. But after about 20 years, the second generation then is asking this. There are two concerns. Will he come back? He hasn't yet. And what about those who have died? What has happened to them? And what will happen to them? And Paul's response is very clear. He says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He is still going to come back. You can be sure of that. And when he comes back, those who have died will rise first. Not only that, he gives this promise. He says, and after they rise first, those that are left living Those of us that are left living, those of us today, 2,000 years later, who are left living, if he comes in the next few moments, we will then be caught up and we will join those who have risen and we will be with the Lord forever. What he does then in chapter 5 is he talks about living in the interim, in the interim between the ascension and the parousia, between his going into glory to be at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he is physically present today and his return, his second coming. And he urges them in the first 11 verses of chapter 5 to live with urgency. You see, Christ will come unexpectedly, and there's where we have that famous phrase, he will come as a what? As a thief in the night. And to stay alert, he's coming unexpectedly. Stay alert and live in hope, he's coming unexpectedly. Stay alert and live in hope and build one another up and encourage one another. And in the next four verses, from verses 12 through 15, we're leading up to number 16, and that's where we'll begin our reading in a moment. He talks about living a godly life, and there are four things that he exhorts them to do. To respect those that teach, to respect those that lead the church, to live in peace and harmony with one another, to be reconciled, to live orderly lives, to live a life that is well-behaved and then to encourage and to support one another. So those four things that he has said almost 2,000 years ago are perfectly relevant today. As we live in the interim, God would have us do those things, to live in respect of one another and especially those who lead and teach us, to live in peace and harmony with one another and to forgive one another and to be reconciled, and we have talked about that over the last three or four weeks to live orderly, well-behaved lives, and to encourage and support one another. But then, how do we do that? How do we do that? He gives instructions and further beyond that, as we live with an urgent expectation of the coming of Christ, how do we live godly lives? And he gives six keys, and they are found in verses 16 through 22. I've decided to expand the reading a little bit beyond what is in the bulletin today. So would you follow with me in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in chapter 16, and we will read through verse 22. Listen for the six things. First, rejoice always. Second, pray without ceasing. 
Thirdly, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then, number four, do not quench the Spirit. Number five, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. And then number six, hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Six very simple keys to godly living. The keys to godly living, I think, are really divided into two parts. One has to do with the fuel and the power to live a godly life, the first three. And the other have to do with our being given direction on how to do so. So the power to move on and then the direction that he gives us to follow. Verses 16 through 18, the fuel for the godly life, he gives three resources, three empowering, fueling resources. Number one, joy. Number two, communion with God. And number three, his provision. And we tap into that fuel, into that power by doing three things. The first is to tap into his joy. We rejoice evermore. He wants us to experience in the interim, every moment he wants us to experience the Lord's joy. We know that that's our strength. Go back to the Old Testament, one of your favorite passages may be one of mine to Nehemiah 8. The joy of the Lord is our what? It is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our power. The joy of the Lord is that which should fuel us from day to day. In the New Testament, in John 15, then Jesus, after he talks about being connected, tapped in, connected to him as the vine, and the Father as the vine dresser, being connected with him, then he says, you see, the reason that I have told you these things is that so you might have my what? Joy. And that joy that flows from me through the vine to you, it will be complete. It will be super abundant. So God wants us to experience his joy, tap into it, rejoice evermore. And then secondly, being in communion with God, it is pray continuously. This means nothing less than to walk and to talk and to listen with God in constant communion. And in doing doing so, we experience his presence. We experience his counsel, his advice. We experience his reassurance, and that enables us to take the next step. The third action is to give thanks in everything. The father loves his children, and he wants to do good things for his children. Earthly fathers want to do good things for their children. And even though we're evil and sinful, and we try to give good things for our children, the heavenly father is far more abundant. He loves to give good things to his children. And we know this. That every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, from the Father above. So all of the good things, we should give thanks in all of those circumstances. But it says in everything. And we know that sometimes bad things happen. We go through adversity. We have problems in life. And even in those things, we're told in Romans 8, that God can, even through those things, He can bring out good for us. Even in the bad circumstances, He says, in everything we are to give thanks, even in those circumstances. For he can accomplish his good purpose, and he can bring about good for us, he says in Romans 8. Now, you notice it doesn't say give thanks for everything. He's not saying give thanks for the bad things in our lives. Don't give thanks 
for the adversity in our lives. It's in those circumstances. Give thanks to God that he is in control. And he can bring about his goodwill. And he can then accomplish good purposes for us, both in good and in bad circumstances. So as disciples, if we're all in, we're told here in this first part about the fueling of the godly life, if we're all in, 100%, we rejoice evermore, forever. We pray without stopping, constantly, and we give thanks in every circumstances. That's what he means when we say today that we're all in. And then he talks about guidance. He talks about guidance for the godly life. We need to understand, and we do, that the precondition for all of this is knowing that it is through the Holy Spirit, it is through God's Holy Spirit whom the Father through Jesus Christ has sent to abide with us when we come to follow Him. It is through the Holy Spirit who lives within us once we have come to follow Jesus Christ. It is through His Holy Spirit that God provides personal direction and power. We see this in those three keys in the second part of the passage. His personal presence. The Holy Spirit communicates the personal presence of God Himself, and He then helps us to walk in communion with God. And it is the Holy Spirit that gives us personal insight and empowerment to know God's will. And the action here is then don't do something. Don't what? Don't quench the Spirit. Listen to the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't put His voice on mute as we have our phones this morning. We do what? We constantly listen and we follow. We don't quench the Spirit. Secondly, for direction in life, He gives us His prophetic utterances. The prophetic word of God, this comes inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, we said at the very beginning that 1 Thessalonians was probably the first of the New Testament writings. They already had the Old Testament writings probably about this time. The Jewish rabbis had accepted the 39 books that we know as the canonical Old Testament. But you see the things that Paul is even now writing. The things that Peter and James and John will write and Matthew and Luke will write These will be prophetic utterances, and what Paul is saying is, make sure that those things that you read come from the Holy Spirit. Make sure even the things that I write come from the Holy Spirit. Test these things. Today, the canon is closed, we would believe. 27 more books, New Testament, 66 books in the canon, which have been affirmed by the consensus of believers throughout the centuries. They have tested to make sure that they are inspired by the Holy Spirit and that they are infallibly true and they are good for correction and rebuke and and instruction in our lives. The New Testament as well. At the same time, God still speaks prophetically. He doesn't give new scripture, but he speaks prophetically, not just from this pulpit, but from pulpits all across this nation. He speaks prophetically when you go into the schoolroom and you share your witness with a friend. He speaks prophetically when you go to work and you give a testimony to somebody. He speaks prophetically when you go to the gas station and you gas up your car and you go in and you see the attendant because the receipt isn't out there at the automatic kiosk. He speaks prophetically through us when we utter the words of God to other people. He speaks prophetically when we interpret the Word of God and we share it with others. We need to make sure that when we speak prophetically that those utterances come by the Holy Spirit. When we give our testimony that we are inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak accurately and truthfully. So the, the, the action here is, he said, examine all of this very carefully. 
Examine those utterances to make sure that they are Holy Spirit-derived, that they come from God. That's what the Bereans did. Paul came and he, he spoke to the Bereans after he was in Philippi, and they did what? They tested to make sure that what he said was consistent with the prophets. Scriptural canonicity, we accept the 66 books. Today, when we interpret Scripture, today when I preach, today when you speak, we need to make sure that when we do the kerygma, when we proclaim the gospel, that it is consistent with Scripture and it is truthfully uttered by the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, in this direction in the second part of the passage, we see that He gives power and direction along the pathway guided by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit walks with us every step of the way, and He reminds us. He reminds us of the teachings of God's commandments and the teachings of Jesus. That's what Jesus said. I'm going to send you the Spirit of truth. He's going to remind you of the things that I have taught you. And the Holy Spirit then helps us to understand the Scripture and to know the boundaries that are in front of us. He keeps the boundaries between good and evil in clear sight for us. So that when we choose to do good and we choose not to do evil, when we choose to hold fast to that which is good and we choose to abstain from evil, the Holy Spirit gives us clear direction as to which is which. Not only that, but He gives us the power to do so. He gives us the power to resist the evil one. We don't just say to Satan, go away. We submit to God and the Holy Spirit gives us the power then to abstain from evil. Everything that we do that is good, anything that a believer that does that is good is done in the Spirit. Anything that is done in evil, anything that is bad, you can be sure it is done out of the Spirit. So the action here, this third action in the direction part of the passage is that we walk in the Spirit constantly and we listen and do what He says. In all of this, I believe the central issue is prayer. The centrality of prayer. The most important thing, I think, in all of these keys for us is prayer. It's the most important thing we do. It is the key to fueling. You take a look at those first three things, rejoice and, and, and pray and give thanksgiving. Well, look at the rejoicing and, and look at the thanksgiving. You see, prayer is at the center point. Rejoice always, he says. When we're discouraged, God lifts our burdens. When we do what? When we talk to him. When David was distressed in Psalm 34, he said, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. You see, the righteous cry, David says, and when they do, the Lord hears. That is prayer, and he delivers them out of their troubles. The same is our promise today. In our invitation hymn, in a few moments, we will sing these words, and they are very pertinent to today's passage. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in what? In prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, precious Savior, still our refuge? Take it to the Lord in prayer. You see, the joy of the Lord in prayer dispels our worry. You know, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men, because you see the Lord is near. And then he says, don't worry. Don't worry about a single thing. But the key to that is what? Prayer. 
Because what does he then say after that? He says, with all prayer and supplication and everything, let your requests be known to God. And he will give you his peace that passes all understanding. You see, joy is a product of that close and abiding communion with God. If we want to rejoice always, we come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice that we hear falling on our ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy that we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. You see, the key to joy is being with God in prayer. When you look at the other part, Giving thanks, it's in everything. Thanks can be expressed in many ways. We did it today. We sang and we praised and we expressed thanks in that. We, we gave and you, you heard Jim pray his prayer, a commitment of what we give. It's not just one act now. It's a reminder and a remembrance every day that what God has given us, we then should return and use responsibly. We pray, we, we worship in stewardship. We worship in ministry. We give thanks in ministry by freely giving to others as we have freely received. But I believe that the primary, deepest, and most focused way that we give thanks is directly talking with God. And how many times have we done that today? How many moments have you spent in prayer this morning privately as the Spirit of God speaks to you and you speak to Him? You see, what I left out in that passage in Philippians 4, and I know that some of you said, He left it out. I did it for a purpose. With prayer and supplication and everything, what? Giving thanks. Giving thanks to God. Let your requests be known to God, and then he will give you the peace that passes all understanding. This is not just an individual thing. It's a corporate thing. As we sing psalms, a lot of our psalms, about 40% of them, are prayers. As we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and make melody in our hearts, we do it with a prayerful attitude, Paul says in Ephesians 5, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in everything. This in everything is not just in every circumstance, folks. It's not just for everything that has happened in the past that we give thanks. It's not just for everything in the present that we give thanks, but it is also for the, for the future. We give thanks to God. You see, our gratitude, our thanksgiving, our prayerful thanksgiving is a down payment on the promise of God's good future goodness. Let me say that again. It's not just being thankful for the past things and the present things, but we need to thank God for what He's going to do tomorrow. Our gratitude is a down payment on the promise of God's future goodness. And what this does then, it enables us to move into the future with confidence. It enables us to know that our Father who wants the best for us and will accomplish His will through us, we can move confidently ahead. The key then to this fuel, this prayer, but also the key to guiding our godly life. The last three, you see, God communicates with us through the Holy Spirit and we are connected to God by prayer through His Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6 puts it very clearly. With all prayer, with every prayer, with all petition, with every petition, pray at all times, how? In the Spirit. On behalf of Christ, the Holy Spirit then delivers His presence to us. Don't quench the Spirit. Holy Spirit, breathe on me till I am all thine own. Until my will is lost in thine to live for thee alone. Breathe on me, breathe on me. Holy Spirit, breathe on me. Take thou my heart, 
Cleanse every part, Holy Spirit. Breathe on me. I want to experience the presence of God. It illuminates in the holy utterances his prophetic word. We sing, open my eyes that I might see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that should unclasp and set me free. Silently now I wait for thee, ready my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine. The Holy Spirit then brings the presence of God through prayer. The Holy Spirit illumines and helps us understand the holy utterances of God, and it gives us direction along life's pathway through the power of the Holy Spirit, Savior. Like a shepherd lead us, much we need thy tender care. We are thine, do thou befriend us, be the guardian of our way. Keep thy flock from sin, defend us, seek us when we stray. Blessed Jesus, Blessed Jesus, hear, oh, hear us when we what? When we pray. Blessed Jesus, oh, blessed Jesus, hear us. Shepherd who guides our way, bless us and hear us when we pray. So this passage says to pray continuously. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean to stay in your prayer closet on your knees with your hands folded 24 hours a day. We get out and we put our, our prayers to work. But I do think that it means this, that we stay constantly aware of God's presence, that we are prepared to talk with Him at any time and not just in crisis, that we're ready to converse with the Lord about anything, not just the needs that we have. It's a commitment intentionally, 100% intending to listen to Him more and more and to talk with Him more each day. It's an attitude of the heart not just an activity of the mind and not just an expression of the mouth. You see, it's really what we often do in everything else in life. It's multitasking. It's spiritual multitasking. It's thinking prayerfully as we go through every step of every day while we're doing the other things in life, and we're open to His communicating with us. We may put the phone on silent, but guess what happens when I get a message or when I get a phone call up here? You'll hear it what? You'll hear it vibrating. You see, that's the way we need to be. Even though we may not be talking verbally to Him, we need, even though we're in the silent mode, we need to be prepared for God to buzz us. We need to be in tuned so when He speaks to us, we need to be ready to talk with Him. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. It's not something that is constantly recurring, but it's something that is continually recurring. The analogy he puts, uses is, and this is an old analogy, it is, Keep the receiver off the hook. Well, that's an old-style phone. But I think that that's very pertinent. You know, we need to keep the receiver off the hook. And young folks, what that means is keep your phone on, okay, so that God can communicate. Stay in touch with God in an ongoing conversation. Don't limit prayer only to set times. If you've got a quiet time, that's great. That's wonderful. I encourage you to have it. We have set times of prayer here in worship. But what we don't do is we don't wait from set time to set time to set time. We cultivate a habit of interruption. We cultivate a habit of letting God interrupt us and to talk with us. And what we should do in this, it should be a goal. We increase the times during the day when we talk to Him, and we decrease the gaps between the conversation. We actually schedule interruptions in our day to talk with God. So why should we do this? 
Why should we pray continuously? I think it's obvious. So that we can have closer fellowship with the Father. We're His children. To have closer fellowship in the family. To discover God's will when it's not revealed immediately. You know, you pray today for something and you may not get that answer. So what do you do? You don't pray it? No, you pray again. And you pray again. You pray again until God answers. It helps us maintain our focus and to stay on task for the kingdom of God. It strengthens our resilience, especially when we are going through adverse times. We wait patiently on God, and He strengthens the core of our spiritual being in difficult circumstances through prayer. It increases our reliance on God. As we pray to God and we feel weak and feeble and capable of meeting our own needs, we are reminded in that prayer time that only He ultimately is our provider. Continuous prayer provides constant guidance for us. Every moment, every decision of life should be prayerfully thought out and responding to God, not just those times in crisis. Through prayer, continuous prayer, we obtain assurance. Assurance that we're in God's will. Assurance when we have doubts, even perhaps of our salvation. Assurance that He will provide for us. Assurance that the good things that we have are benefits from Him. Continuous prayer prevents sin. I believe this. If a person is in genuine communion with God, it is impossible for that person to sin. So being in prayer with God and asking Him then to help us abstain from that, you see, prevents us from sin. And then Jesus tells us a very significant purpose for continuous prayer. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the parable of the importunate widow, the widow that goes to the judge that does not want to respond to her request. And Jesus says this, now the scripture says this, now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray pray so that they would not lose heart. You see, being continuous in prayer is a continuous encouragement for us. We should be persistent in prayer. It is said that D.L. Moody carried with him in his coat pocket a list of a hundred names in his lifetime. And he prayed every day persistently for those people. Do you pray for people that you know that are lost? Do you have a list of people that you want the Lord then to call into the kingdom? Do you know people that seem to be hopelessly lost and so far from God? It is impossible for us to reach them. It may be impossible for us to reach them, but it's not impossible for God. And D.L. Moody knew that. He carried this list of a hundred names in his pocket, and one by one by one, in his lifetime, 96 of them came to know the Lord. Persistent prayer, folks, for a friend or a family member that you think has drifted away or maybe never come to the Lord can be recovered through persistent prayer. And then remarkably, at his funeral, guess what happened? The remaining four came to know the Lord. We must be persistent in prayer, but we need to be careful. We need to watch out. That doesn't mean that, that, that we persuade God somehow to do what we want. What it means is that we have discovered God's will, and we pray for that, and He accomplishes it. You see, we don't manipulate God in our prayers. Two other things I think are important. Continuous prayer heightens the urgency. We're reminded as we pray to God, He reminds us He's coming again. 
Paul's warning is pertinent here. He's coming again, and it may be immediate. And there are not four more months to the harvest. That's what he says to his disciples. The harvest is urgent. The harvest is there. Lift up your eyes. Look at the fields. It's here. And friends, we have no assurance that the harvest will be there tomorrow. We have no assurance the harvest will be there tomorrow because he may come this afternoon. There must be a sense of urgency when we pray for those that we know that are lost. A sense of urgency asking God to empower us and to give us the courage to share the gospel with them. And then finally, you know, praying continuously makes us master craftsmen of our trade. What is our trade? We're disciples by trade. We're followers of Jesus Christ. And the only way to grow spiritually, the only way to grow, grow as a master of your craft as a disciple in godly obedience is continuous prayer. The 100% rule, you see, also means this. If we're going to be 100% all in, it means that we need to practice what we preach. We need to practice and practice and practice. We need to pray and pray and pray. Professor K. Anders Erickson is a researcher in the psychology of the nature of expertise. How do you become an expert at things? Malcolm Gladwell has popularized what Erickson has said. Erickson's point is this. After examining many, many, many different experts in their trade and the products that they produced, he's come to the determination that it takes at least 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert in your field. Hmm. And beyond that, when you do become an expert in your field, practice, practice, practice. If you are going to stay facile, if you're, or if you're going to stay really engaged, and if you're still going to be able to perform, you must continue to do what? Ben, practice. Alan, do you ever practice? Amen. All the time. This doesn't just happen, folks. Mariano, this doesn't just happen. Practice, 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 practice. 10,000 hours to become an expert. Folks, have we spent 10,000 hours in the practice of prayer? You know, Yasha Heifetz, the world-renowned violinist, said this, if I don't practice one day, I know it. If I don't practice two days, the critics know it. If I don't practice three days, the world knows it. Folks, isn't it interesting why is it that Christians don't take more seriously the most important practice at the core of their relationship with God and is the key to the success of their ministry? Why is it that we don't pray? Why is it that we don't practice the craft of our trade of discipleship? You see, this is a corporate responsibility. It's not just I, it's not just you individually, it's the church together. The church must be continuous in prayer. We must make a decision to be all in, 100% in. We must do that as a collective body. We must be continually devoted in prayer, not just as individuals. That is what happened at Pentecost. They were all together in one place, and they were praying continually. They were devoted in prayer. And then you go over to chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then after 
Peter preaches his sermon. They were wholly devoted in prayer. 3,000 were saved. And as we said two weeks ago, they then came back from the Sanhedrin and they were intimidated by the Sanhedrin and they were continuous together, together, the body together in prayer. And the place where they were abiding and praying was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Folks, America is not going to experience revival. America is not going to recover from its moral malaise until the churches in this nation, not just individuals, but the churches in this nation recover the passion, the apostolic passion and determination to pray. To pray. To pray. Continuously. Father, this morning, our prayer is, there may be someone who has heard this message that has not made a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And our prayer is this morning, maybe it is someone who has drifted from family. Maybe it is someone who had made a commitment earlier and has fallen away. Maybe it is someone that has just now for the first time heard the gospel. And our prayer, our earnest prayer is that that person will respond to the conviction and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that brings the truth of the gospel into that person's heart. That Jesus Christ loves you. That even though you and even though we are sinners, he died for us so that he could cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he could bring us home to the Father, make a heavenly home for you and for me. And our prayer is that that person will surrender his or her life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, our other prayer is that we will be more committed in prayer, that we will be more constant, that we will want and we will crave, that we will hunger as the deer pants after the water for your fellowship and to talk to you and to listen to you and to have your Holy Spirit guide us. And Father, our prayer is that our nation, that the churches in this nation will make a commitment to pray and to pray not to cause you to bring revival, but they will be prayerful for the harvest because you want to bring it, because you tell us to pray for workers for the revival, because you tell us, Lord, to take a look at the fields for they ripen to harvest. And Father, we pray that revival might come upon this nation, but first of all, we pray that we will be committed to do our part and to pray for it. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray. Amen.